Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A heads up before we begin, this episode has some adult language and sexual themes that may be upsetting. So do plan your listening accordingly. I never liked school. I was always late. In fact, I hated it. I'm watching a video. It's called Why I Never Became a Dancer by the British artist Tracy Emin. It's from 1995. You can't hear this, but the visuals are grainy. It looks like it was taken from an old motion picture camera. We're in Emin's hometown of Margate in England, but we don't see her. They're just kind of random scenes. Seagulls on a boardwalk, a fish and chip shop, a woman trying to win a stuffed toy with a claw. The summer was amazing. Nothing to do but dream. And then there was sex. It was something you could just do. And it was for free. It didn't matter that I was young, 13, 14. It didn't matter that they were men of 19, 20, 25, 26. I remember the first time someone asked me to grab their balls. I remember the power it gave me. By the time I was 15, I'd had them all. And for me, Margate was too small. By the time Emin was growing up, Margate was already very seedy and it became much seedier. It became really abandoned and neglected. That's Jan Daly, our arts editor. So the images that accompany this really, really, yeah, harrowing, I found it harrowing account, are also quite sad. Emin tells the story of being 15 and entering a ballroom dance competition. It's her ticket out of town. She makes it to the local finals, but as she dances, the cheers are interrupted by a group of men, most of whom she'd slept with. They're chanting, slag, 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 slag. Slag is British for slut. Emin runs off the dance floor and onto the beach, crying. But in the end, revenge is hers. Shane, Eddie, Tony, Doug, Richard, this one's for you. The film cuts to a more recent scene of Emin. She's all grown up, and she's dancing freely and joyously around what looks like a really nice empty gallery in London. For two minutes, she dances in jean shorts and a button-down to Sylvester's You Make Me Feel. Margate was a source of pain for Tracy Emin. After leaving town, she became an artist, and in the 80s, she made very confessional work that was based in her experience as a woman. Her early pieces deal with breakups and the female body. And because of it, she was chastised as crude and sensationalist. But over the decades, she has become recognized as one of the great living artists of our time. She's part of the British Royal Academy. Her work is being shown alongside Edvard Munch. In short, she's an artist vindicated. Today, Emin is setting up her legacy, and she's chosen to do it in Margate, that same seaside town she escaped. Emin lives there now, and she's building a museum for her work and artist studios and an art school. This week, we're going to Margate to meet her. 
Later in the episode, we're talking about wine with Jancis Robinson, FT columnist and one of the world's most esteemed wine experts. When she's not writing columns, she's advising the queen on her wine cellar, and she's here to teach us how to taste wine. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Jan, how did you feel watching this video? It's really heartbreaking that I just feel so strongly about this incredibly young woman, not even a woman, a girl. She is a victim. There's no question that she's a victim. She is, you know, really used by these guys who she Mm. has sex with. At the same time, she's incredibly independent and Mm -hmm. just saying, I want to do this. Why shouldn't I do it? It was fun. And that kind of duality about how a woman might be if she wants to be independent about sex and have a completely different view of what an emotional and um, erotic life might be, that, I think, has gone on through Tracy Emin's work, and you can Mm. see it right up to this day. I'm wondering if you could sort of help us understand, for anyone who doesn't know Tracy Emin, who she is and, and what she's known for. Of course. Well... Tracy Emin is really pretty much a household name in Britain, but not possibly quite so well known in the rest of the world. She came to prominence as part of the young British artists movement in the 1980s. And she was immediately an extraordinary figure, a kind of enfant terrible, if you like. Mm. She works in a whole load of media, painting, drawing, film, photography, sculpture, Um, but maybe it was her installations of the late 1990s that made her best known. The first piece of work that put Emin on the map was called Everyone I Have Ever Slept With, 1963 to 1995. And it was a camping tent inside of which she had stitched the names of everyone she'd ever slept with. It was part of a big early show for the Young British Artists Movement, which was led by Damien Hirst. It was called Sensation. It also thrust Emin into the spotlight in another way. To promote Sensation, she appeared on a Channel 4 television debate after a dinner celebrating the show, and she was drunk. She was slurring her words and arguing with the guests. Real people in England watching this program now. They're really watching. Real people watching this program. Why are you asking that question? They're probably as real as you are, Tracy. Let's face it. They're just 25 minutes behind us. Emin's next big work was called My Bed, which became her best known. You should Google it. It's her actual bed after she'd spent several weeks in it during a terrible breakup. The sheets are dirty and unmade, and it's got a pile of dirty tissues next to it, used condoms, a pair of underwear stained with period blood, a carton of cigarettes. It's the bed of a person who's sad. And so this um, bed was exhibited, first of all, in Tate, as part of the Turner Prize exhibition, and it's been seen over and over again around the world since then. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, What is it like? Well, it's a bed. You know, it's a a kind of scuzzy bed. Right. You know, like in your first worst shared apartment where you had, you know, filthy roommates. (laughs) Right. It was a very powerful statement at the time, I think. To see something like that in a very respectable gallery, one of the most respectable galleries in London, Tate. Uh, It was very groundbreaking. But Emin's work continued to evolve. 
It always keeps the themes of the body and emotion, but it's a little more understated now. So, for example, she does a lot of self-portraiture. There are a lot of beautiful um, new drawings of herself in all sorts of guises and poses. There are very, very emotionally striking neon works where she writes in neon in her own handwriting, highly charged messages as if to a lover or a loved one. Personally, I love her drawing. I think Mm. she is an extraordinary draftswoman. She can do these very easy, freehand, fast figure drawings, which really excite me. I'm curious if those early works, like uh, Everyone I've Ever Slept With and My Bed, do you think that they sort of overpowered Tracy Emin's other work? I think your question was the right one about whether her reputation has overshadowed her work. I think it has, probably, because you know what happens to an artist who becomes very successful, very young with a particular kind of work. What happens is that everybody wants them to go on doing that kind of work. It's difficult to evolve. But when I say that she's matured as an artist, I think that's true. And she's become, you know, very respectable in the sense that she's a Royal Academician. She was professor of drawing at the Royal Academy. That's one of just four women ever to be appointed to an Academy professorship, by the way. She has had exhibitions just about everywhere you can name in the world. She's lectured. Her work is a lot about a woman by herself. So she has addressed the subject of women and how they live their lives in a quite important way. And I think that everything has come from that. A few years ago, Emin was diagnosed with squamous cell bladder cancer. It's a very aggressive strand of the disease that led to a surgery in which she had her bladder removed, as well as her urethra, her lymph nodes, her womb, and half of her vagina. She's getting better now, and she's cancer-free. But it changed her life, and it made her rethink her legacy. How could it not? I want to come back as a ghost. I want to be happy ghost. I don't want to be throwing things around. We asked Emin to record her thoughts for us about her current work. That's what you're hearing now. You know, it's taken me ages to work this out, and I think the cancer really helped with this. Like, thinking that I was going to die, I had time to think, what would I have done if I wasn't going to die? I don't have children. I don't have a husband. I don't have a wife. I don't have a partner. I don't have a lover. I don't want to leave this earth wondering what I was doing here or wondering what it was all about. So Emin began to plot a major center that would house her art, but also make education and studio space for artists who are just starting out. And she also lives there. The setting for this artist utopia is Margate. And as it happens, Margate's also had a small revival. There is a major new gallery there called the Turner Contemporary, and a lot of artists who've been priced out of London live there now too. We painted Margate earlier as an awful place for Emin growing up. And it was. She says so, too. But she also says that Margate saved her. She says if she'd lived somewhere else, she might have died. That it's motivated her to keep going. I see Margate as being a pioneering place with pioneering spirit. And it was in the doldrums for a long time. And now, due to a lot of creative people and new energy, um, it's really, really changing. 
in Margate, you have those lines all the time, constantly, with the sea, with the sky, with the clouds. And also, with, with the sunset, it is one of the most incredible sunsets in the world, because even though we're northeast, we're facing west. So it means the sun is really big, like a giant halo. And behind all that is France, Europe, the world. And that's what I grew up with, knowing that life was much bigger and much greater than what surrounded me in Margate. So Emin is giving back. Her vision is that artists come to Margate, they spend two years with very cheap rent so they can just focus on their work, and then they leave more prepared for the world than she was. I make absolutely nothing out of this. I bought the building complex outright, so I'm not trying to pay off a mortgage or anything. But the compound is also quite literally cementing her legacy, her way. Emin wasn't respected for a long time, and now she is. So it's up to her to control how she's seen after she dies. I've always done everything myself in lots of ways, so I don't see why my legacy should be different. If I plan ahead for it, maybe other people, I've got conviction in it, maybe other people will have too. My colleague, Louis Wise, who writes for the FT's luxury lifestyle magazine, How to Spend It, went to meet Emin at her home in Margate. There's a link to his piece in the show notes. So tell me what it was like to go and to meet Tracy. I mean, like, bring me through the doors with you. So I turned up, walked down, and she lives in this kind of complex, which is part studio, part apartment block. And uh, her friend, Robert Diamond, who runs the gallery next door, met me and brought me inside to her house, which is really gorgeous. Mm. Very, everything is just so in her house. You know, there's nothing's out of place. Yeah. And actually brought me into her bedroom where there was like Gregorian chants playing. <laughs> <laughs> and the kittens were playing Havoc in the Bed. And then we go through and then it's, Tracy comes up from her private swimming pool that she's got there because she loves to swim. So I first met Tracy wrapped in a towel. <laughs> <laughs> and then we w- walked around the studio. And then she showed me this new other compound of old buildings, a Victorian bath and a morgue that she's going to turn into a a museum and studio space for other artists. Wow, a morgue? Yeah, a little mini. (laughs) It's a little like Victorian mini morgue. Apparently for the... Get ready for this. It's because it's the small one because it's for the bodies of the sailors they'd found at sea. They were so decomposed, they truly stank. So they had to have their own little morgue, (laughs) which now, of course, is going to become a mini Tracy Emin museum. And she loves this kind of detail. That's amazing. (laughs) Emin has cash to spend. She's been enormously successful commercially. That piece, My Bed, it sold in 2014 for almost $3.8 million. I liked the way she talked about money, to be honest. We British are a bit embarrassed about talking about mm-hmm. money. And she has that too. She doesn't want to boast. But she also isn't going to shy away from what you do with your money if you have it. Sure. Also, what I have to say was really great about the piece and why she agreed to be interviewed by How to Spend It is because she really wanted to talk about how she spends it um, in both a very political and a very pleasurable way. Yeah. She obviously is an extremely wealthy artist now. As she says, she's earned it, quite literally. She's come from a very poor working class background. And she, A, wants to give back. But then also part of the chat was really fun. And I was asking her about, you know, what she likes to spend her money on, what her luxuries are. And that was there's something really fun about that as well, I have to say. It's interesting. I, I was struck by how open she is about her illness on Instagram. Um, she's yeah. been showing photos of her bandages for her bladder cancer and her treatment and 
it seems like she's been this way through her career that she kind of can't help but be entirely herself. Yeah. And there's something very, like, refreshing about it. It's interesting because she does, uh, I'd read before we spoke a bit about it, she bristles if you just think she's overly confessional, like there's no art to it. Right. But absolutely, she would have to be massively naive to not pretend that like her work is hugely expressionistic and it involves that kind of honesty. It has to come from something deep within her. Mm. She did say that because of her illness, she tries to manage herself more. Yeah. Can you tell me a little more about about what you mean by her bristling at the idea that people think that it's just confessional and it's not art? Well, I think it's an accusation that's leveled at a lot of female artists, I think. Yeah goes back to the idea of hysteria, the hysterical woman. Mm-hmm. And I think Tracy is in a long line of female artists who people just think, oh, she just... For instance, the bed yeah. is, has got no art to it. And I think she bristles at it a bit or is suspicious of it because I don't think men get the same critique when they do something equally savage or unconstrained, right, you know. Right. She's frustrated that people are more into Tracy M in the personality than the art. And at one point, one fun exchange, I said, oh, you know, you've just had a massive show at London's Royal Academy that everyone loved. You're now showing like at the Monk Museum alongside your hero, Monk. <laughs> I feel like people are respecting your art. Yeah. <laughs> and she kind of grumbled and laughed and said, well, they better get on with it a bit faster because I nearly died last year. <laughs> <laughs> So, and I have to say, we laughed. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if actually you ever lose that thing where you still want to prove yourself. I guess she really does have a fire in her belly because yeah. she is a young woman from Margate who came from nowhere and has got to here. Yeah, yeah. Louis, thank you so much. Thank you. And now we're going to talk about wine with another woman who's one of the best in the world at what she does. I'd like you to meet Jancis Robinson, the FT's esteemed wine columnist. She smells and tastes and lives and breathes wine. This is a typical working day for me nowadays. As a wine writer based in London, I might set off straight after breakfast to taste a hundred tough young reds. Turning pleasure into pain is an occupational hazard. That is from the first episode of a wine course she made for the BBC back in 1995. It's so good. Very 90s and irreverent and funny. It's simultaneously teaching you about wine and making fun of courses that teach you about wine. I've put it in the show notes. Jancis has been writing and broadcasting about wine for almost 50 years. She's qualified as a master of wine and was the first person outside of the wine trade to get that recognition. She's big time. You don't actually have to swallow a wine to taste it, which is why we professionals spit for a living. And sometimes, when we have to taste a hundred wines a day, we spit to live. Jancis's mission throughout her career has been to make wine accessible for everyone. In one of my favorite parts of her course, Jancis is wearing this flared collar and flared cuffs. She looks amazing. And she's standing in front of a room of straight-laced industry professionals and basically says... You don't need to listen to these people. Wine professionals like this lot have no special powers, you know. Anyone with a sense of smell and an interest in wine can be a wine taster. Tasting is so subjective and the jargon so imprecise that your impressions and your words are every bit as valid as theirs. When we started this podcast, I thought, if I want to introduce listeners to my colleagues in FD Weekend, they need to meet Jancis. And a few months on, to bring in the new year, I got my wish. She said yes. 
I'd love to know, you know, you've been the wine critic at the FT for 30 years. I'm curious how you got into tasting. Was there like a bottle that turned you? Was there, was it gradual? Yes, there, there, there was. It was when I was a student at Oxford and um, where I was effectively introduced to wine. And the, there was one particular bottle shared at a restaurant of a really great red burgundy. Mm-hmm. It was a 1959 Chambol Musigny Les Amoureuses. Hmm. But it was just so much better than student plonk. And, <laughs> you know, in the glass there was history and geography and psychology and economics and all sorts of things. And I just thought, yep, yeah, that's the sort of thing that I would like to devote my life to. But it was so long ago, this, it was in the early 70s yeah. that the subjects of food and drink were seen as irrevocably frivolous. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that. I mean, in the BBC wine course that you did those 20 years ago, you said that British people hardly drank wine back then, and, and you're saying now that it was frivolous. It's, it seems so hard to believe now. But <laughs> what was the attitude to wine back then? Yeah, what was it like? Yeah, it was sensual pleasure, and getting pleasure from food and drink was seen as somehow wicked. Because right. I think, it, you know, at that stage... Famine was a very pressing problem. And I think people thought, therefore, you shouldn't take any pleasure from what you eat. And by extension, of course, wine was still seen as an elite drink. And I I had that knocked out of me. Between school and university, I worked a summer as a chambermaid in what was then, I think, Italy's most expensive hotel. We could drink as much of the house wine as we liked. But if we wanted water that was safe to drink, we had to pay for it. (laughs) And and that really showed me that here in another culture, wine was not at all seen as snobby and an elitist. Jancis, you must spend quite some time responding to people who are intimidated by wine or they want to get into it, but there's just something so entwined between like um, snobbery and wine or intimidation in wine that there isn't around other things that you can build a knowledge base around. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm curious why. I wonder whether it's because some people wear their knowledge rather heavily. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I just don't like that wine snobbery thing. Yeah. There are a lot of people who say to me, I want to learn more about wine. What shall I do? And I know, selfishly, I should say, read my FT column, buy my books, join my website, you know, whatever. But actually, what I say is find a local independent retailer of wine, a nice local wine shop, and tell them what you've liked so far. And it's in their interests to introduce you to something that they think you will like, that's perhaps a little bit more interesting or better value or... Um, just better made. Mm -hmm. And I I see strong parallels between wine shops and bookshops. You know, you would go into a a nice local independent bookshop and say, oh, I really love Ann Tyler or Mm -hmm. something like that. And and they would recommend something similar. And the same thing I think can happen with wine. And people who work in wine generally love talking about it. You know, that's much more interesting for them to have a customer with some opinions or questions than just someone who dashes in and grabs a bottle off the shelf. You know, it's true. I think like I started to learn more about wine last summer because 
the pandemic, I think a lot of people started to learn a little bit more about wine. And I joined a, a wine club. My friends and I got went into some, a friend's backyard and and bought some wines together so we could taste more expensive wines. And one of them had... Which is a very sensible thing to do. Yeah, yeah. it was a good way to, to learn more. One of them had done a sommelier course, so he was sort of teaching us. Um, we were going to different regions, different weeks. And, and so I learned enough to feel confident enough to start talking to the wine cellar at my local wine shop. And um, I realized, like, what have I been doing this whole time? They were so thrilled <laughs> <laughs> to just yes, have a conversation. Exactly. You know, it's like once you open the door, suddenly people who are into wine are very excited to share knowledge in a way that's not pretentious at all. Yeah. And if they recommend something you don't particularly like or a series of things you don't particularly like, then move on to another store or something. But thinking about eating out and restaurants, you know, some people feel very intimidated by the wine list and just search for a name that means something to them. And for us wine professionals, we do exactly the reverse. We're always looking at a wine list oh, what have I never come across before? Oh, interesting. I'll try that. And if you ask the right person, they just love to tell you. Here are some more tips from Jancis on how to appreciate a good glass of wine. The first is from her course. The browner a wine, whatever the color, the older it is. Reds go from deep purple to pale brick, while white wines deepen with age. The standard way to look at a wine's color is to tilt the glass away from you against a white background. Tip two, if you don't recognize it, you might want to try it. I know that wine shops just look absolutely terrifying because there are just all these bottles mm. in often languages that you know, you're not familiar with. Right. One tip really is unfamiliar names are actually always worth going for because if they're not mainstream names, they've had to earn their place much more keenly mm. to be on the shelf. So don't be frightened to experiment and, and go for something that looks really weird, like, Interesting. you know, a Czech Vermentino or something like that. Tip three, skip the champagne. If you are looking for value in a, a sparkling wine, I think the French non-champagnes are pretty good value. And they're always prefaced with the word cremant, C-R-E-M-A-N-T. Tip four is price. Jancis says price and quality is not a linear relationship. There are a lot of good, affordable wines. So in the UK, I'd say the sweet spot mm-hmm. is probably 12 to 20 pounds a bottle, probably. Right. And there, you're pretty much getting what you pay for. Yeah. In the um, US? In the US, probably. 16 to 30, I would imagine. is like Yes, that. yes. Probably all 35. The American market is more faddy even than the British. And, you, you know, you suddenly get everybody mad for Jura or everybody mad for Gruner Feltliner from Austria <laughs> exactly. or something like that. <laughs> Are there any other places where um, we, should we should be, be looking, looking Yeah, around the world? I'm a great fan of both Portugal and Greece mm. as wine producers because they both have a wonderful range of indigenous grape varieties. Mm-hmm. So that it's not just any, you know, A and other Cabernet kind of thing. Yeah. They're both producing really fantastic wine of all three colors or nowadays you have to say all four colors because there's this new orange wine <laughs> right. and um and not at ridiculous prices mm-hmm. so I, those are my tips of the day Jancis, we will have to have you back i have a million more questions um thank you so much for taking the time it was such a pleasure to talk to you great pleasure thank you
that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast. Next week, we have the James Beard award-winning Mexican chef, Patty Hinich. She's published my favorite cookbook of the year. It's called Treasures of the Mexican Table. And she's got a great documentary out on PBS right now called La Frontera. If there's a book or show or artist that you love right now, I would love to hear it. You can contact me in a few ways. By email, we're at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can find a lot of behind-the-scenes podcast stuff and culture conversations on my Instagram. If you want to read the FT, I have a great deal specifically for listeners of the show. It's 50% off of a digital subscription. There's also a great print offer for $20 in the U.S. for three months to get FT Weekend in print every Saturday. Those offers are all at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. The link's in the show notes, as are links to everything mentioned today. If you like the show, please do follow and subscribe to FT Weekend. Tell your friends about it. Recommend it on your social feeds and tag us. Those things seem small, but I can't tell you how much they really help support us so we can keep bringing you great stories. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and this is my incredible team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyen are our assistant producers, with additional help from George Drake Jr. Breen Turner is our sound engineer, with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley, Manuela Saragossa, and Topher Forges are our executive producers, and we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. Thank you as ever for listening, and we'll find each other again next week.